So last week we, we got into really this idea of what it is to stand firm, what it is to be a citizen of heaven. And it's interesting, as we, as we go through this, Paul, it seems to have been building a case, he seems to have been building uh, kind of a line of thought that he's running with, what it is to live as a citizen of heaven on earth. And then we, our, we come to our passage today, and there's almost this interruption of thought, almost this interruption of the progression. And so we're going to kind of get into that and try and discover why Paul would have, in verses 2 and 3 today, as we look through 2 through 7, why he would have what is a seeming inconsistency or interruption in the message that he's communicating to these in Philippi. You see, but at the heart of the sermon and the heart of the message that Paul communicates to us today is something we so desperately need to see. You see, these people living in Philippi were suffering, they were struggling, the world around them was warring against them, their finances were calling out and saying, man, I'm not here for you, I don't have enough support to offer you. And so we very much understand what it is like to work in a world that is hostile to our beliefs. We very much understand what it is like to struggle financially. But Paul offers this word, peace. He gives us the locus, he gives us the place where we might find peace in God and peace with God. Let me read for us, starting in verse 2 of chapter 4 in the book of Philippians. Paul writes and he says, I entreat Euodia and I entreat Suntiki to agree in the Lord. Yes, I also ask you, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel, together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers, whose names are in the book of life. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Let your reasonableness, reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your request be known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. So Paul opens this up, and it's pretty clear that as we finished verse 1, and as we roll into verses 2 and 3, that if you're just reading straight through there, something is amiss. Something is going on in Philippi. But you see, as Paul opens this up, it, it's, 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 it's interesting. Here he's calling somebody out. You remember the other two people that Paul spoke of directly? He mentioned Timothy, right? And he said, Timothy is a, a man of proven character. I have no one like him. He talked about Epaphroditus, and he said, he's my fellow worker. He's my fellow soldier. He's my brother. And so he said nothing but positive things to say about the people that he has mentioned directly. But can you imagine for for a second that you're in this room, this letter has traveled all the way from Rome to Philippi, and and someone is reading it out loud. And so you're resonating with certain things, and you're you're feeling the piercing arrows of your conscience in certain things. You're like, oh, I'm not doing that very well. Oh, I'm doing that. Oh, that's fantastic. You know, you're kind of, you know, cheering in the, ooh, gut-wrenching sigh. And then all of a sudden you hear your name called. It's as if you're sitting in a classroom, and you're diligently daydreaming about something other than algebra, and your teacher says, Zach, Carol B., oh yeah, 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 Uh, X X is 2. You're like, well, the variable is A. Um, 
in this particular instance. You're like, well, yeah, but X uh, earlier, X was two. See, as they hear their names brought out, Paul had the understanding that, man, they were mature enough to handle rebuke. They're not weak in their faith. They're mature enough to be able to withstand the rebuke that he offers. But it's important to also notice Paul doesn't take sides. It's not that he writes to them and says, hey, look, it's made it to me, and I realize that Euodia, man, you are so culpable. And soon to keep saying, that's right, she is. That's right, she is. She needs to get right with God. Come on, Paul, preach it. No, he goes and he says, Yodia, I entreat you. And then he turns to Suntiki, he says, Suntiki, man, I entreat you too. It's almost like they, they sit and they say, well, isn't he going to take sides? Is he going to tell us which one of us is correct? But he offers this word to them. He says, agree in the Lord. Do you remember when we went through chapter 2 of Philippians? Chapter 2, verse 2, Paul offered a command to the whole church. He offered a command and a word to the whole gathered fellowship of believers. And he used the same wording in the Greek. He said, complete my joy by being of the same mind. Complete my joy by agreeing. So Paul had addressed the entire church in Philippi. He had addressed the entire gathered body of believers. And his word to them was this. Agree. Man, think the same things. Come together for the advancement, for the progression of the gospel. And now what was at that time offered as a corporate command is here met out in the particulars of everyday life. See, Paul's not just throwing out blanket comments and, and hoping that it would find everybody, but here he's found an issue. He's found a practical way of speaking into this situation in Philippi. He comes to both of these women and says, I entreat you and I entreat you. Come together and agree in the Lord. You see, the word he offers them isn't one of, you know, you need to find some type of workable solution. You need to find a compromise, if you will, that honors your position and your position. You know, kind of a halfway point. But he identifies the position of their agreement, not in their, their own situations, not in their own stances and positions, but primarily in the Lord. See, man, there are going to be things that you and I are going to disagree with. There are going to be things that, that you and I, we have different ways of coming at the same problem. But it creates an impasse. It creates an impasse, and Paul is about to offer us three imperatives. And until we find a way to agree in the Lord, we're never going to make it to rejoicing. We're never going to make it to being reasonable. And we're never going to experience the peace of God. We've got to find a way to agree in the Lord. At the heart of what was going on in Philippi, these two women stood in opposition to one another and disrupted the unity, not just in their relationship. You see, because the church is a community of believers coming together. So where there are two of us that aren't agreeing which is, you know, readily found in most Baptist churches today. Probably not Methodist, but a lot of Baptist churches. We have to handle these things. You see, if we, if we take these things and we just continue to sweep them under the rug, 
Imagine, if you will, a large living room. And it's got a big, big rug in the middle, and perhaps it has a coffee table underneath it. And, 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 you know, we invite people into the house. And we're like, well, you know, Robert's kind of cantankerous, but let's just take his issues and, and push them under the rug. And let's just take the issues of, of this person over here, and, you know, let's, just, let's not handle that either. Let's simply sweep that under the rug. You know, before long, we've swept so many issues under the rug that our coffee table's at our ceiling, we can't even see the TV. You see, there's a lesson to be learned here. Although it seems easier in the immediate to just sweep things under the rug, although it seems certainly a lot less difficult just to sweep things under the rug, there's going to come a time when our unity is so fractured, when our focus is so inhibited that it destroys the whole thing. We cannot sweep things under the rug. And Paul here turns to these two women and he tells them, you must agree in the Lord. Now realizing these two women are likely you know, not willing to just automatically relinquish their point, he goes on and he says, okay, well, I, I get that. I get that you guys probably don't want to come together right away. So this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to get some other people involved. In verse 3, he says, yes, I also ask you, true companion, help these women. So Paul doesn't refer to this person by name, but he gives them the title of true companion. Think of the weight of that. This person is so well known in the community, he's so well known as a member of this church that by merely offering a descriptor of what this person is like, everybody else turns and they look at this guy and they're like, oh, true companion's going to help him. Man, that's a good thing. True companion, I had him over for dinner last night. He, I mean, he not only fixed my table, but he solved my, wife's and, my wife and I's issues. True companions on the job. But see, but Paul doesn't just come to him and say, true companion, I want, you know, maybe you could get together and you could offer some type of, of mediation. Help each one to see the benefits and the detriments of their respective position and, and somehow move forward. You see, when we come across this word help, that's, that's kind of what we think, right? That it's just gentle easing and helping, kind of, you know, helping our grandmother down the steps. The same word is used for the rest of Jesus in John 18. It's not gentle coercion. It is taking by force, laying hold of, seizing. You see, this is how important unity is. Paul wants this true companion to grasp them, to take hold, to make them agree, to help them agree in the Lord. You see, but as we read this, we start thinking, man, wouldn't it be better off just, just getting rid of old, uh, old you and sin? Their, their names become laborious after a while. You and sin? Wouldn't, wouldn't it be better just to kind of kick them out? And Paul reminds them exactly who these women are. He frames exactly who these women are. He said these two women, these women who are, find themselves in disagreement, man, they have labored side by side with me in the gospel together with, with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. So Paul stops the speculation. He, he lays waste the speculation that these women aren't Christians. He lays waste the speculation that they have no fellowship with Paul. 
He recalls the past event when he was perhaps in Philippi and he's out there planning the church. Man, these women were side by side with Paul. It's the same thing he said of Epaphroditus. They're co-laborers in the work of advancing the gospel. They're not people always given to cantankerous behavior. They're just people that find themselves in disagreement with one another. And he says, you know, in their name is in the book of life. Paul offers a sure commentary on their salvation. He says, these women are saved. These women are diligent workers. And not just that I've heard that they're working, but I have experienced the outflow of their lives in the working with all diligence in the advancement of the gospel. You see, disunity disrupts rejoicing and inhibits the peace of God. But after Paul addresses this disunity, after he addresses this impact, he's going to move in. He offers them three commands, three imperatives for what their life should look like. In verse 4, he says, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say, rejoice. And this has been a pretty frequent theme in the book of Philippians, that they might come together and be joyful, come together and find purpose in rejoicing purpose and rejoicing. You see, but their, their reason for rejoicing aren't that things are going to get better. You know, Paul doesn't write and say, well, you know, I've heard through the rumor mill that the emperor is really about to let up on the persecution of Christians. He doesn't point at something in their circumstance to say, you know, well, this isn't going so poorly for you, so, so rejoice. Instead, he offers them a command. He says, rejoice in the Lord. You see, just as Yodia and Suntiki were meant to find their agreement in the Lord, so too these Christians and us are meant to rejoice in the Lord. We're meant to rejoice in the Lord. We're meant to be people that are characterized as being joyful. You know, we're not meant to be these people that walk around with torn shirts and sackcloth and ashes and just Oh, you know, how's the world? And you're like, oh, just the weight of sin is just keeping me down. Man, as Christians, we're meant to be the people that are rejoicing. You and I have so much to rejoice over. You see, in the midst of the worst circumstance, in the midst of failing health, in the midst of a lagging economy, in the midst of a country pulled in two very different directions, Has our salvation been impugned? Has our salvation grown weak? You see, we rejoice in the Lord because we always recall the fact that our salvation is sure, that we are standing fast in the firmness of the Lord because He holds our salvation and He keeps our foot sure. There is no slipping. There is no wavering. There is no falling back. We are able to rejoice by virtue of the fact that our salvation is in the Lord. You see, there might have been those that that read this and said, well, maybe he misspoke. Maybe he misspoke. 
But again, he comes to it, and he offers them a, for a second time a command. He says, and again I say, rejoice. Paul is speaking to every circumstance. Paul is speaking to every life situation. Paul is speaking to every inconvenience of life. But some of us have grown so accustomed to what it is to mire and wallow in self-pity and suffering that the idea of rejoicing in anything is just wholly alien and wholly uncomfortable. You remember that Paul wrote these words from a Roman prison. Paul, one who identifies not only in his lifestyle, but also in his body, what it is to suffer for the sake of the gospel. And the word that he offers isn't, you know, five steps on how to avoid suffering and persecution, but the word he offers instead is rejoice. Man, this should really shape the way we look at things. This should shape the way that we interact in community. That when he comes to it, he isn't telling us how best to live our lives, but he offers an imperative, a command, which is to rejoice. And I tell you what, when we get a hold of this rejoicing, when we get a hold of what it is to have all of our happiness and all of our being rejoicing in the Lord, it doesn't matter what circumstances we find ourselves in. It doesn't matter how bad things get around us. Because we will be able to rejoice. We must not grow accustomed to this, this suffering. We must not grow accustomed to what it is to lose. Because that's going to affect the way that we view reality. But when we view reality from the position of rejoicing, it radically changes not only the way that we interact with those around us, but also the way we interact in the church. You see, speaking back and offering commentary on the disagreement between Yodi and Suntiki, if they had remembered to rejoice in all things, rejoice always, it would have done a great deal of damage to their ability to continue to find themselves in disagreement with one another. And you know, in moving from this command of rejoicing, Paul moves into what the relational quality, what the relational aspect of such a thing is in verse 5. In verse 5 he says, Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Now this is, this is kind of an interesting word here, reasonableness. Other translations might render it as gentleness or softness or yieldedness. Now, where does Paul identify the place of their reasonableness? Does he say, now, as you're interacting, as you're gathered together as a church, let your manner of life be such that you're gentle towards one another? Do you guys think that he's offering that as the, the locus for where the reasonableness should be? Certainly. But does he restrict it to that? Of course not. You see, I'm very much reminded that the lives that we live together here as we gather together as the body of believers at Ridgecrest Baptist Church, the way that we act together should not be different than the way that we act in the world. And so this command then to be reasonable Man, it's really easy along people you get along with, right? How easy is it to get along with your best friend? How easy is it to find yourself in agreement with people you enjoy spending time with? 
when maybe the most significant thing you argue about is whether or not Oklahoma should beat Texas. And we all hope that, that they both lose. You see, but what he's talking about isn't this idea of, of being reasonable amongst people that you can get along with, but being reasonable everywhere, in all places, with all people. Republicans, Democrats, Libertarians, Green Party, everybody getting along. Because they're able to rejoice in the Lord. Because they're able to agree in the Lord. He's not you know, putting forward some type of utopia. He's not putting forward some type of idea where we just agree with everything everybody says. Be like, oh man, that's very good. That's your truth. That's very good for you. No. Man, it's very much holding tight the truths of Scripture. It's very much holding truth to an absolute. But it is not beating people down. It is not this idea of, as, Burger, as the Burger King model says, of having it our way. Yeah, you can have your burger your way, but you can't have everything in life your way. And Paul offers them this, this word, in living in a community that wanted to see them suffer, living in a community that was very much opposed to the Christian way of life. The word he offered them was, be gentle with those around you. Show deference to those around you. And then he has this kind of odd phrase there at the end. He says, the Lord is near. Now, depending on which translation you have, they're either going to put it as its own sentence, they're going to put it with verse 5, or they're going to link it in with verse 6, as the ESV does. But the idea behind this is that as we rightly recognize that the Lord is near, that he is close at hand, we're able to rejoice. You'll remember that last week Paul said that we await a Savior. He's powerful. He's going to transform our lowly bodies to be like his glorious body. He again returns here to this idea of the coming of God. And he says, look, we're not just waiting on him, but he is already near. That he is already near. And it gives them encouragement. It gives them empowerment. It gives them the ability to bear up under the slings and arrows of those that seek to tear them down. This is where they find the empowerment to be reasonable. See, it's not just Paul submitting them to some type of training for how to disagree yet agree at the same time. Oh, yeah, that's, that's good. Oh, yeah, I totally agree with you. But when they have a right understanding, when they have a right response to the presence of God, then they find the ability to be reasonable with those around them. Now, in verse 6, we move into what is the final command. And quite possibly the, the one we need to focus on the most this morning. He says, do not be anxious about anything. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything. A right recognition that God is close and that he is near and that he is at hand helps us not to be anxious. It helps us not to have anxiety. See, Paul isn't talking to them about how to overcome their anxiety in their own ability. And in fact, verse 7, he, he gives us a, a word to speak to the impossibility of such behavior. But he says, don't be anxious, but instead, he offers what the opposite of anxiety is. 
He says, but in everything with prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be known to God. You could, these words are synonyms. You could say with prayer and with even more prayer. With thanksgiving, let your request be known to God. See, Paul comes in and he says, prayer, with, with, with the times you speak to God, with supplication, those times where you're asking God for something. He says, let all of those times be characterized as being made with thanksgiving. You see, if we're not being thankful to God, if we're not demonstrating the characteristic of thanksgiving in our prayer, then when we're praying about the bad things that are happening to us, it's nothing more than complaining. Then it's really just nothing more than, than running out a steady litany of all the things that are going wrong in our lives. You see, the framework and the basis starts with this idea that we offer it in thanksgiving, in joyous thanksgiving before a holy God. And if we do it without thanksgiving, when, we, when it turns to, to requesting things from God, then instead of coming before a holy God with a thankful heart that he has offered to us salvation in the person of Jesus Christ, then we offer nothing more in that case of coming before a holy gift giver. And I want what I want, and I want it now. You see, but when we frame these things, and when we change our perspective to being one of thanksgiving instead of being one that just wants to give, then we come before God. And you might ask yourself, why do we even need to pray? Doesn't God already know what I need? Well, of course. Of course God already knows what you need. But in the moment when we pray, then we're casting all our cares and we're recognizing our dependence upon God. See, prayer isn't just one directional. It's not just us speaking to God, but it is also God speaking to us. And through the process of prayer, a change takes place. And we recognize, and I can't do anything to affect this. God, you give me the very breath that sustains my life. God, you keep the whole universe in perfect balance. And we recognize our complete and utter dependence upon him. Yet another thing happens when we pray. The psalmist writes in Psalm 50 in verses 14 and 15 that to offer God a sacrifice of thanksgiving and perform your vows to the Most High. And call upon me in the day of trouble and I will deliver you and you shall glorify me. Quite simply, God is glorified in the asking. God is glorified as we come before him and we make requests of him. Because it forces us to recognize where we are and where he is. See, God is a God who desires for us to have communion with him. He is a God who desires for us to have communication with him. We need to pray with thanksgiving, realizing that God is a, is a giver of good gifts. And then finally, we arrive at the culmination of these three imperatives. We arrive at the culmination of what it is to rejoice, of what it is to be reasonable, and what, if it, what it is not to be anxious for anything. Verse 7, we read that the peace of God, and the peace of God which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. And that is great news. 
that as we find ourselves in this process of rejoicing, that as we find ourselves in the process of being reasonable with irrational people, and as we recognize that the Lord is at hand, and there's no reason to be anxious, there's no reason to have anxiety, that the peace of God washes over all things, that the peace of God stills the heart that cries out. That the peace of God in the midst of economic turmoil calms everything. That the peace of God in the midst of sickness, sadness, and suffering is the balm that cures all ills. You see, it is the peace of God. And this peace, we read, it surpasses all understanding. See, it's more than we could possibly ever conceive or understand. But beyond that, it's not something we can figure out on our own. There are an immense number of authors who have penned uh, entire volumes on how to achieve peace in life. How you can overcome stress, how you can you know, win the battle over depression, how you, you know, seven steps to your best you. But until you have a right recognition of who God is and who you are, vanity of vanities, all is vanity. It's all striving under the sun. You see, the peace of God isn't something that can be concocted in a seminar. It's not something that we can be forced with a, with a quick five-step plan. It's not something that we can even get through medication. But the peace of God which surpasses all logic, which surpasses all emotion, the peace of God. Man, it, it, it calms our hearts and it calms our mind. Paul here uses the word guard. He says it guards your hearts and it guards your minds. You see, as he wrote to this group of Philippians, there's a Roman outpost, there's a Roman garrison there and they were meant to be a reminder to those in the city that the strength of Rome stood for their defense. They were meant to be a reminder to those that would seek to attack this city that the strength of Rome stood against their approach. And so when he writes this word, and he said it's the peace of God which garrisons your heart. He was offering this word to them. The full strength of the Roman army offers nothing against God. The full strength of the might of Rome is weakness before a mighty God. But the peace of God, as you rejoice in Him, as you find yourself being reasonable with the irrational, as you find yourself not given to anxiety, the peace of God, it'll guard your heart and it'll guard your mind. And it'll guard everything in between. Jesus speaking to the disciples in John 14 had this to say on peace. He said, peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled. Neither let them be afraid. Guys, you see the importance of this impasse that, that Yodia and Suntiki found themselves in? 
that as they were so inwardly focused and as they were found in disagreement with one another, they lost focus of all rejoicing. They certainly weren't being reasonable with one another. And all it did was stir up anxiety in the body in Philippi. That's because what the body of God needs is to experience his peace. What we here at Ridgecrest need is to experience his peace. And we cannot do it until we make a purposed declaration that we will be unified, that we will think the same things. We cannot do it until we are willing to wade through the muck and the sin in our lives and say we will not tolerate it. You see, as people who have salvation from a holy God, we cannot tolerate sin. We absolutely can't have it because it's so wreaks havoc in our lives, and then as we do life in community together, it destroys the fellowship in this church. You know, for too long, church discipline has been thought of as this, this great evil that we do on people that we just don't get along with. But the purpose of church discipline, the purpose of calling people out on sin, is restorative in nature. It's because we're more concerned that people have a right relationship with God, not allowing sin to destroy it, to decay it, than we are the discomfort it causes us when we call people out on sin. At the heart of this passage, very much we learn this lesson that God desires for us not to meddle in one another's lives, but to care enough about one another that we would get entrenched in their lives, that we might unearth sin. The man, so through that, together, we might find ourselves rejoicing. That we could be reasonable with one another in here, and we could be reasonable with people across the city and everywhere we encounter. And as we find ourselves rejoicing, that we might not suffer anxiety, but that the peace of God would cover all that we do, that the peace of God would even be in those situations when we're dealing with the sin from one another. Let me pray for us.